So we're in our series, uh, Four Voices, One Story, and this series is about the birth of Jesus, and uh, it's looking at it from the angle of four different Gospels. And so this is, Andrew Franklin started this series two weeks ago. He came up with this series, uh, and then uh, he said, you're preaching on Luke and John. So these two weeks, I'm going to be preaching on Luke today, and then John next week. So it's almost like if you were to see an event through the lens of four different cameras, and you get a different perspective from each one. That's what it's like to see the birth of Jesus through the lens of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So today, we're on Luke. So I'm going to invite you just to jump right in with me. Open up to Luke chapter 2, verses 22. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. We would love to give a Bible to you. We want you to be um, able to see the actual words. What I say Uh, has little meaning apart from what's said in the scriptures. That's where the real power is. So I want you to be able to see that. It's page 591 in that particular Bible. Um, Don't be shy. People, raise your hand. Take this Bible home with you if you you need a Bible. Um, It's Luke chapter 2, verse 22. All right, now I'm going to give us a little bit of background. The story of the birth of Jesus in Luke is the most extensive of all the different Gospels. And so, um, and so let me give you a little bit of background, because we can't read the whole thing. There's just too much there. Um, it starts off, and there, it's, it's really easy to understand the structure. There's this parallel track going. First, the birth of John is foretold. Now, who's John? John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. He's the guy that's going to go kind of like in front of the parade, heralding the coming of Jesus. And he's going he's to call people to repentance so they can get their hearts right with God, So that when Jesus comes, they're ready to receive him. That's the role of John the Baptist in the Bible. So his birth is foretold. And then immediately following that, the birth of Jesus is foretold. Now when John's birth is foretold, it comes to this older woman, Elizabeth. And she's barren. And she, so she hasn't been able to have children, and she's sort of maybe even beyond that age. And yet this angel comes and says, you're going to have a child. And then with Jesus, the, 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 the angel comes to speak to um, Mary, who's now on the other side. She's a teenager. She's a virgin. She's betrothed, but she's not married. And uh, the, the, the message is that you're going to have a child, and this one's going to be called um, Jesus. And so you have these two stories of birth going on, and you have two different responses. The husband of Elizabeth, Zechariah, doesn't believe, and so God closes his mouth. He's, he becomes unable to speak for the entire nine months of the pregnancy, maybe even longer. Mary responds in faith. Uh, and, and we have this call, it's called Mary's fiat. That's the Latin word for let it be, essentially. So when the, when the angel comes, she says, let it be, let it be, let it be. Yeah, I believe that this is going to happen. Whereas Zechariah is un, in unbelief, Mary is in belief. Then in the next part, the birth of John then is told. And that's when John, uh, Zechariah's mouth, the father, is opened and he's able to speak again. And he utters this great praise, the song of Zechariah. And then we have the birth of Jesus told. So we have the foretelling of each and then the birth of each. And I'm amazed at how simply Luke tells us the story of Jesus' birth. Now, for those of us who expand out and think through the whole theology of the Bible, what we see, you know, what we understand is that this is the very coming of God himself. That's how we understand who we understand Jesus to be, is Jesus is God in the flesh and so you would think uh, that, you know, you would anticipate that the telling of it might be quite grand. But we have these simple verses in chapter 2, verse 6 in Luke. says, and while they were there, 
the time came for her to give birth. This is to give birth to Jesus. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The birth of Jesus. Then there's some shepherds that are out in the field nearby and they're just doing their thing. They're kind of the lowly shepherds. It's sort of the lowest task, the lowest job that you could have. And the angels appear to them and they give them the reason to praise, which is the king has come, Jesus has come. And then they burst forth in a multitude praising in the sky above the shepherds. And the shepherds run to see what's happened. And they celebrate and they get to be the ones who tell the news to others that Jesus has come. And then the parents take Jesus up to Jerusalem to the temple to present him there. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 22 of chapter 2. It says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother, that's Mary and Joseph, marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, little harbinger of the cross and the suffering that will result in for Mary. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, like Simeon, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So she probably spent about 60 years as a widow. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She's just longing for God to do something in the world. In verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Lots we could talk about in Luke's version telling of the birth of Jesus, but I want to clue in on one simple idea, and that is this, that for Luke, the story of Jesus' birth is a story of how the lowly are lifted. Okay? So if you're taking notes, that's the main point. It's a story of how the lowly 
are lifted. And what I want to talk about is a little bit about the lowly, and then we'll talk a little bit about being lifted. So first of all, the lowly. The birth of Jesus was always about the lowly, right? We always, we've always known, I mean, the fact that he was uh, in a manger and he just came to a regular family, we, we know all that's the story. But Luke takes pains to really underscore how Jesus has come for the lowly. And, and let me describe how he does that. You don't see, for example, in Luke, the wise men. You see that in Matthew, but not in Luke. Instead, you have shepherds who were the lowest of the low. They were the lowest on the totem pole. They were the outcasts. They were dirty. They were not the kind of people that somebody wanted to be. Uh, but they, they, they had these jobs, and, and they're the ones that the angels come to. And Luke highlights that aspect of the birth of Jesus. You don't really see King Herod like you see in Matthew. There's this clashing of kings and royalty and all this. You just hear one little mention of King Herod, uh, and apart from that, that's about it. What you do have are these average people, just regular kind of people who are struggling with life's problems and life's challenges, and uh, they're the ones that Jesus is coming for. You've got an older, barren woman who uh, feels self-conscious, feels vulnerable. You have uh, her husband, a priest. He's not the high priest. Maybe his only time ever to go into the temple would have been this one time when the angel comes and tells him that, his son will be John the Baptist and that he's going to have a son. You've got this teenage girl on the other side of the spectrum who lives in a place called Nazareth. And everybody reading that would have said, well, where's Nazareth? It's just this little tiny town. They have to say, Luke has to say, oh, it's in the region of Galilee because nobody would have known where Nazareth was. It was such a small, backwards, out-of-the-way place. And then you've got her uh, future husband, the carpenter, Joseph, who is a seemingly somewhat unremarkable. He has an unremarkable task to do in life. And what he is, is he's caught up in this oppressive regime that's forcing him to go and complete the census in Bethlehem. So from Nazareth to Bethlehem is about 70 miles. His his betrothed is nine months pregnant, and he's supposed to take her all the way down to Bethlehem uh, because the governor says that's what you do, and there's no reprieve even for the fact that she's nine months pregnant. And so he's under this oppressive regime, even though he's in the line of David. He remembers a day when Israel was the greatest power of all. Now they're under the Roman thumb and they're being oppressed. And then there's this group of shepherds, like I said. And then there's, when they get to Jerusalem, you know, they bring Jesus in and they don't bring him to the high priest. It's just a regular guy, Simeon, who shows up to offer a prophecy and to pray and to praise the coming of Jesus. Now, he's a very devout man. He's been, you know, year in and year out fasting and waiting, and he has this vision that before he dies, he will see the consolation of Israel. And that vision comes to fruition. But it doesn't come to the high priest. It doesn't come to the high people in the high places. It comes to this regular guy named Simeon. And then after that, just happened, so happens that this widow, who's been fasting and praying for 60 years, for God to do something in the world. She just happens at that hour to come waltzing up to the temple and walk into this scene. And she gets to see the answer to her prayers. She's 84 years old. She's been waiting and waiting and waiting and then waiting some more. And she's a widow. She's been a widow probably for 60 years. She's not a high person on the totem pole. She's not... The, the one that people look to, to understand the, the times and what's going on. But she's the one who's been 
made present to witness this incredible thing that's happening. So the birth of Jesus, as, especially as Luke tells it, is a story of the lowly. And you would know that even if you didn't have all these people. I mean, Luke is emphasizing it through all these people. But you would also know it because of the very fact that there's no room. We learn that there's no room in the inn from Luke. He's the one who tells us that part of the story. So here you have, you know, this very anticipated child. And he goes to war and he's under this oppressive regime. So they send him to another town. So he's got no place even to be while he's coming into this world. And then after he's born, he's placed in a manger, which would be in the feeding trough. So imagine, you know, just shortly before that, there's, there's food and whatever grain is in there. And now the, very, the baby Jesus is being put in there because they have no other way, place to put him. And then when they go up to Jerusalem, this little family, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they bring the offering of the turtle doves or the pigeons because that would have been the offering of the poor. So Jesus comes to this poor couple, this regular, average, lowly couple. And Mary really says it the best in her Magnificat. We call this praise in in chapter 1. Look with me in verse 51. Talking about God, she says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. This is chapter 1, verse 51. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted, listen to this, those of humble estate. That's what we're seeing throughout the whole telling of this. Those of humble estate are being exalted. He has filled the hungry with good things. Those who are impoverished and the rich, he has sent empty away. See, the birth of Jesus is good news for the lowly. It's good news for the lowly. They matter. What it really says is that the lowly matter to God. The lowly people matter to God. To God, and, and when you think about that statement historically, it's an amazing thing. How many cultures have been tempted to put the lowly on the side, to get rid of the lowly, to diminish the value of the lowly, the poor and those who are on the outside, those who don't have the name, those who don't have the title. I was just in Berlin traveling and um, the, we went to the Topography of Terror, which is a museum about... Um, you know, the Nazi period. And in that, you see that the Nazis, what they wanted to do was to get rid of all the lowly, to get rid of all the outcasts, all the ones who were sick or all the ones who were marginalized because they were a drag on their society. And, and how tempting would it be for all societies to make that decision? That's a very utilitarian decision that, 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 that makes sense on some logical side depending on what your view is and and what what Luke is saying and the gospel stands utterly against that view it says no there is value in the lowly they matter to God so much so that when God sent his son he sent his son to the lowly they were the first ones to get the news they were the very vessels that enabled God to come into the world taking on flesh What a beautiful statement just to interject this into our world, into the way we look at the world, into our society, into the way that we treat others. It changes everything. When the outcasts are moved to the center, when the lowly are elevated, 
It's a powerful truth that our world desperately, desperately needs. And it's been part of our world ever since Luke wrote it. And it's shaped the way people think. And it's shaped societies. And it's a critical, critically important truth. So who are the lowly then among us? Think about your life. Think about where you walk on a Monday and a Tuesday and Wednesday. Where, who are the lowly? We're the lowly in our world right now. I was in, again, in Berlin and, and went to a wonderful church in Berlin. Um, and the pastor decided uh, last Sunday when I was there that this would be the Sunday where he would just address head-on the issue of refugees in Germany. And, uh, you know, flood of refugees coming out of Syria and other places like Eritrea and they're crossing the Mediterranean and they're ending up in Greece and then Germany has said, we'll take in 800,000 of these. And so it was very much on the minds of the congregation to think through what does it mean for us that we're going to take in all these refugees and what should our position be? What should our stance be? And it was a beautiful, beautiful sermon that he gave. A very Christian sermon. And what he said, he said, look, Christmas is a great time for us to talk about refugees. And sojourners, because our Lord himself was a refugee and a sojourner. And then he went back and he said, all the way back since the beginning of this whole redemptive process, God has been working through the Bible. We were called to be favorable towards the refugee and the sojourner. Why? Because we ourselves are sojourners and refugees. Look with me at Leviticus 19, 33 through 34. Very beginning, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger with sojourn, who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So why do you love the stranger? Why do you love the refugee, the sojourner? Because you were a refugee and a sojourner. And fast forward, your Lord was a refugee and a sojourner. And so that's why we love and we take in the refugee and the sojourner. Now, this is a complex topic. And of course, we have to be wise about how we do it. There's lots of conversation to be had about that. But our default mode as Christians is to be welcoming. That's our default mode. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's who we're called to be. And that's what this pastor was teaching his church. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, the sad thing is that the church in that area is, is fairly uh, weak in, in many respects in terms of numbers. And so you've got all these Syrians coming in to, um, uh, to, to uh, Berlin. And, and there was a refugee camp that we... We would have gone to, but we got hung up at the border, so we couldn't get over there to go. But we wanted to see, how is the church loving the refugees in Berlin? And so um, we missed that opportunity, but we've heard about it. And we, but, 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 but the weakness of the church in that area, because and, and, Berlin is very much like here in terms of the numbers of Christians, is a travesty, it's a shame, because what an opportunity for, for, for Christians to show the love of Christ to a people who are hurting and broken and in need and longing to see the sacrificial kind of love that Christ teaches us to give. They're longing for it. 
and they're open. And so it's, it's sad that we have this, mis- and it gives us pause to say, you know, are we going to continue to be bold in stepping out to be faithful in loving the lowly, loving those who are on the outside with the resources that we have. And, and, and we'll leave how we're going to do that for another time. But the, the, the heart has got to be there. The heart has got to be there because that is, this is the Christian heart to love the refugee, the sojourner, the one who's on the outside. So in a very tangible way, we see in our world that we've got this, this going on right now. And I, I was just amazed. I mean, listen to this. Listen to what it says um, in chapter 2, verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinus was the governor of Syria. So in other words, Jesus was born in Bethlehem because there was a governor in Syria who was oppressing the people. And the Bible doesn't speak to our times, right? Some things just maybe don't change. Jesus was a refugee. Jesus was a sojourner. And we're called to be loving. Now, so there's that very clear example. There's that tangible example. It's all over the news. We're trying to process it. We're trying to understand what's going on here. And that's important. But we need to press this a little bit deeper, too. The lowly is not just that obvious kind of person. At the end of the day, the lowly person is you, and the lowly person is me. We are the lowly people as well. We may not think we are. We may not look like we are. But we are. I, when I was traveling to Berlin, I, um, because I'm a cheapskate, I took the long route. Um, so I did a little stop off in Istanbul and then over to, uh, to Strasbourg, uh, France. So it was an 18-hour flight. And so I had lots of time to watch movies. And there were lots of movies on there. And I watched one movie, uh, Love and Mercy. Has anybody seen Love and Mercy? It's a story of Brian Wilson, who's the, the Beach Boys uh, composer, leader, main person. Now, I didn't watch all that unfold. I've heard the Beach Boys music. Um, but I always just assumed that the Beach Boys were this great, you know, multi-platinum selling group that had lived on top of the world and everything was wonderful in their lives. If you would ask me, I would have assumed that they were the, 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 not the lowly, but the high people. But the story, the movie Love and Mercy tells the story of Brian Wilson, who actually had some psychological uh, problems. And they began to show up in the band. And then as time went on, it got worse and worse and worse. And this poor man uh, was reduced by this. Uh, he was abandoned eventually by his family. He was, he was under the oppressive rule of a psychotherapist who controlled all of his assets and everything. So here's this incredibly wealthy, incredibly successful person who's been abandoned and rejected. And he's under the iron fist of this crazy psychologist. And he's been reduced to nothing. There's no music left in him hardly. There's no life. He's drugged everything. And it was a great reminder to me that we have to be careful to assume when we look at the person next to us, not to assume that this person has it all together. That their life is all that and a bag of chips, you know, like we say. Um, that their life is just, it's just, it's just running on all cylinders. And you can walk into this room sometimes and you look around and you go, oh yeah, this is where all the good people gather because it's church, right? They got it all together. And there's a temptation. It's almost like Satan wants us to think that a little bit so that we'll remove ourselves and we'll say, we're, the, we're among the bad people, the lowly, the, the ungood people, and there's all the good people, and I can't be a part of them. 
But the reality is this, and this, this love and mercy story just reminds me of this. You take anybody's life and you pull back the curtain, and what you're going to see is brokenness and pain and suffering and loss and sin and ugliness and all of that. Because that's the human condition. It's who we are. We are all lowly people. And the good news is that Jesus came for the lowly. Came for the lowly ones. You. For me. He wants to lift us. So, the lives of the lowly are characterized by waiting. See that all throughout. The life of Jesus is characterized by lifting people out of their waiting and their vulnerability and their pain and their suffering. And as Jesus, is the baby's about to be born, you just see this starting to happen in Luke. First of all, there's Elizabeth and she's barren and she's been waiting and she's almost given up hope and she feels ashamed before others. And then all of a sudden she finds out that she's going to have a child. And so her waiting is transformed. She's lifted. And then you've got Mary. Mary is overwhelmed by this this responsibility she's going to give. You're going to be the mother of God. You're going to be mother of Jesus. And and she's this teenager living nowhere, and she's overwhelmed by the responsibility. But Jesus comes, and as soon as this, this, this message comes, Elizabeth comes along and encourages her. Joseph, who you would have expected to abandon her, because she's pregnant as a virgin by the Holy Spirit. Who's going to believe that, right? And so you would expect Joseph to abandon him, but God sends an angel to Joseph, and Joseph does the right thing, and he sticks with her to care for her and to nurture her. And then Simeon and Anna come on, and they, they pour on to Mary to bring her support and encouragement that she needs. Zechariah is waiting because his voice is gone. He can't speak at all because he didn't believe when God said he was going to have a son. And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. But when the sun comes, he gets to speak again. So his waiting, his vulnerability is transformed. He's lifted. And then you've got uh, Joseph, who is living under this oppressed regime, right? He's, he's in the line of King David. So in his memory is the time when Israel was greater than all the rest, better than all the nations. That time is long gone. Israel is oppressed. They're under the th- thumb of the Romans. And here he is. He's he's in the line of David, and yet he's a carpenter forced by the oppressive regime to walk his nine-month pregnant wife all the way 70 miles to Bethlehem just to sign a piece of paper to register that they exist. He's waiting for regime change. And what does he get? A king. The baby king who will bring about regime change in due time. And so his waiting is answered in the person of Jesus. And then you've got the shepherds in their mundane existence out in the fields just waiting and waiting and waiting. Nothing interesting ever happens. Maybe once in a while a bear comes or something and everybody talks about that forever. But they, you know, there's not much going on. And all of a sudden the skies burst open and the angels come and, and they say, you who felt like you were the lowest of the totem pole, we're coming to you to tell you 
that Jesus is here. The Christ has come. And then Simeon, who's been waiting and waiting and waiting, and he's getting old. And you know how this is when you're getting older and you, you start to think about the next generations and this sort of, you see this in people, a kind of a depression sets in because you think, how are my children going to make it in this world? Because it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And how are my children's children going to make it? What's it going to be like for them? And Simeon is just carrying all this weight. Is there any hope? And the baby Jesus comes. Before you know it, he's holding the consolation of Israel. The hope of Israel in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what you see, and Anna, the same thing. She's been fasting and praying, and then Jesus comes. So what you see over and over and over again is, is these vulnerable, lowly people who are waiting and waiting and waiting. And the answer to their waiting is the coming of Jesus Christ. And the message is that's always the way it is. That the the answer to all of our waiting and all of our suffering and all of our pain and all of our oppression and all of our struggle, the answer is always Jesus Christ. You may identify with Elizabeth. You might have a, a physical ailment. You may identify this morning with Mary. You may feel like the, the responsibility that God, that I have right now in my life is overwhelming. I can't do it. You may feel like Joseph, uh, excuse me, Zechariah, struggling with unbelief this morning. You may feel like Joseph, like you're under some sort of oppressive regime. Maybe it's work, maybe it's something else, but you're, you're, you're somehow locked into something that you can't beat. And, and so you're like Joseph this morning. Um, you, may be like, well, you may be like Simeon. You've been, you've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and you're fearing the world around you and what's happening in it. And so the coming of Christ is the message that all is not lost. Or you may be like those shepherds living in this mundane, I get up every Monday morning and I go and do my work, and it's the same thing over and over again. Nobody appreciates me. Nobody acknowledges anything that I am. I'm nothing in this world. What do I matter for? And the angels are coming to speak to you. to say, Jesus, the King, is born. And we want you to know because you matter to God. always, always, always the case that the pains and the suffering and the struggle and the sin of this human life finds its resolution in the person of Jesus Christ. And we embark on a lot of searches to find the answers to our problems in all different kinds of places. And what Luke is saying to us this morning is look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. For those things that are beyond your control, for those things that make you feel vulnerable, for those things that you've been waiting and waiting and waiting to have resolved, look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. He will meet you now, and then He will meet you with complete and perfect resolution of all your struggles in the future. That's who He is. That's why he's come, for you, because you matter to God. In that movie, Love and Mercy, about uh, 
Brian Wilson. He's oppressed, he's abandoned, beleaguered, he's got no life left to speak of, drugged up. And he goes to buy a car, and there's a woman that is selling him the car. And I, I don't even know how this happens, but he just sort of sees something in her that is hopeful. And he strikes up a relationship with her. And at the end, she ends up being the key to his salvation, to his being broken from the oppression, from being reconnected to his family, from getting the the mental issues under control. She's the key. That's where it all begins, when she enters his life. And this is where it all begins for us, when Jesus Christ enters our life. That's when all the healing starts. That's when all the transformation starts. That's when everything becomes possible because the person of Jesus Christ has the strength to do what we cannot do. So one of the things they say about the Gospel of Luke and his telling of the Christmas story is that unlike any of the others, it is filled with praise. Now why would that be? Because when you take people who have given up, who are oppressed, who are broken, who've been waiting for decades and decades and decades, and you reveal the hope of the world to them, the natural response is worship. So we see the Gospel of Luke in this telling of Jesus is filled with worship. When Mary hears, well, first of all, there's there's Zechariah and Elizabeth They say worshipful things. And then Mary, we have this great, the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You know, Bach wrote an incredible piece of music using the Magnificat as his words. I commend it to you. It is glorious. Trying to capture the the wonder and the, the, the beauty of what Mary says here. But it's not just that. Then when Zechariah gets to speak again, the first thing he does, it's his, his song. He praises God. And then, and then we have the shepherds and the angels come and they praise God in the multitudes. And then Mary and Joseph praise because Simeon and Anna are praising. Everybody's praising God. That's, just, that's how Luke, it's the most emotional of all of the tellings of the birth of Jesus. Because these lowly people who seemingly have no more hope have been given the hope of the world. So I want to say to you, if you are beleaguered this morning, if you are vulnerable, if you are waiting, if you are beset with sin that you cannot overcome, This gospel is for you. In fact, you are in the best place to receive it because like water flows down to the lowest spot, the work, the Spirit of God flows into the lowly soul. So this week, as we enter into Christmas, celebrate your lowliness. Nurture it, know it, identify it, relish it, and bring it to Christ. God, thank you for giving us a reason to worship. You are so good. You meet us in our need. Your spirit flows into the lowly places. And we love you for that.
We praise you. We worship you. So meet us, we pray in Jesus' name.